the bigger picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and joining me for The Bigger Picture today is Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in uh, London. Um, Tim, we're going to start, really, I suppose, by marking the fact that the Duke of Edinburgh is no longer with us. I mean, you know, a factor in our lives ever since we were born, frankly. Indeed. I mean, this is a man who uh, uh, was born at a very turbulent time, uh, his family, um, you know, his his parents separated. Uh, his older sisters got married. He he was almost orphaned to some extent. Um, came to the United Kingdom. He was he was in the middle of an upheaval, a military coup in his own uh, country, and um, and he was sort of rescued in apparently in an orange box by the Royal Navy, uh, and came to Britain. Went to Gordonston. Um, and um, and at an early age, joined the Royal Navy. I think he joined the Royal Navy when he was eighteen, which was nineteen thirty nine. Um, and in nineteen forty one, he transferred to HMS Valiant, which was a, a battleship. Uh, he served in the Far East, uh, was mentioned in dispatches. Uh, he then uh, um, uh, was involved um, in the Battle of Crete. Uh, he's also involved, I mean, in, in Cape Matland. You know, that was a, a, a huge battle. Uh, anyway, he served with distinction. Uh, uh, the Queen obviously met him when she was very young. She was actually 13 uh, and then confessed to her nanny uh, when I think she was 15 or 16 that she indeed had fallen for this dashing young naval officer and, and, and they got married. I don't think that uh, she or he expected uh, that, well, that that the king, her father, would die so soon, but he did when they were in uh, visiting Kenya at the time. Uh, and uh, she, of course, ascended to the throne and he became a consort. And he's the longest serving consort uh, in British history. Uh, he served with distinction, not only the war, but held all kinds of posts um, with the armed forces subsequently as, as the Duke of Edinburgh. Um, and I mean, he was, you know, he, he, he held the rank of Admiral of the Fleet. Um, he was a field marshal in the British Army. He was Colonel of the Grenadier Guards, Colonel in Chief of the Army Cadet Force. Um, in the Royal Air Force, he held appointments. He was including Marshal of the Royal Air Force, Commodore in Chief of the Air Training Corps, Honorary Air Commodore of RAF Connos, and it went on. And he also um, created huge numbers of charities, one of which is Touching Life of My Own teenage daughter, Duke of Edinburgh's award, but, but countless charities. He was obviously fascinated by sort of technology, science, engineering, all these things. Um, and there he was. He, I think he was married to the Queen for just over 70 years. He's always been there, hasn't he? Always a fixture in our lives. And yes. what an extraordinary character. Renowned, of course, for his well, I'm not sure he would necessarily consider them gaffes, but plain plain speaking, I suppose, is the way we've been of a, of a previous generation, perhaps. Absolutely, it it was a you know a previous generation, and um, I think we can all wonder at times um, what we all say um, uh, and what we may be damned for by two yeah. or three generations hence. And and he was, you know, in in that spirit, uh, he you know he did swear a lot. Um, there was a famous comment when the Queen was younger, she said to have 
a friend of hers, close friend, I think all husbands swear. He, he swore a lot. Uh, I think he thought swearing was quite funny. Um, and he did use, by today's standards, some inappropriate language. Um, but, you know... The Navy is not renowned for a mealy-mouthed personnel. Um, well, no armed forces, I'm sure, anywhere in the world is. I mean, yes. you know, um, but, um, uh, but he, you know, he was... While he used language that would displease, you know, progressive modern people, you know, which I include myself, you know, a younger generation... Um, what was interesting, he wasn't a fuddy-duddy. You know, when he, when the Queen became the Queen, and when he became a consort, he was a real tour de force. He was a real moderniser in Buckingham Palace. He didn't like all the flubbery and the puffery and the ceremony and sort of the, the bepowdered, wigged characters that were, hang, you know, sort of uh, around court. And he didn't like the sort of 19th century overhang. He was very interested in uh, the, the moon missions of the United States, the moon landings, the future of television, the future of communications, engineering, you know, he was very much, uh, I think, uh, a cutting edge royal for the 20th century. Um, but it is just that, that some of the things he said were from a previous age. To be fair to him, in the last 20 years, he seemed to have got slightly more with the groove of modernised, um, and and obviously he'd had criticism in various ways, and, and he, I think, try to catch up a bit, even though he would never admit that, of course, and he said he would never change. Uh, I mean, that's what he was re renowned for, the, play, the plain speaking, but listening to somebody who had worked with him for many years, I was, I confess, slightly surprised, perhaps because of that image, to the degree of erudition. Um, he would talk about just how well informed he was and how often between meetings he would read several books on a particular subject yes. to make sure that he knew everything that, could, that he needed to know. Yes, that's very important. And, you know, if he went on a factory visit, for example, he was famed for going off the beaten track and going to the corner of the factory and finding a piece of machinery. Or or if he was you know, in an aircraft factory, he would go and look at a particular aspect of the wing. And he wasn't there just pleasing people. He was genuinely interested. He read a huge amount. He would... If he talked about ecology or the environment or engineering or science or what the future might bring, he didn't do it just because he was being polite and that was the sort of royal duty imposed on him he did it because he was reading about these subjects himself and he wanted to engage um the people who had the knowledge the depth um he was a very curious man and although in some ways he had a very turbulent childhood and he became self-reliant on all the things we're learning about him um he was very much an autodidact he was someone i think um that uh, was almost self-taught. And we talk today, or we talked in, in recent years about lifelong learning. I think Prince Philip was engaged in lifelong learning in his own life, um, really from the late 40s, early 50s onwards. Uh, he was a great sort of tinkerer. He loved machinery. He loved, um, you know, all the technology of the future. Uh, he, he was interested in computing long before we heard about personal computers. You know. yes. It does remind one, doesn't it, of an earlier consort, um, Prince Albert. Well, absolutely. In extent, absolutely. In the, the, uh, you know, end the relation. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. And I mean, one of the really uh, uh, interesting things about Prince Philip is, uh, and this is a little bit like Albert, not just interested in their age and curious and curious about the technology and the machinery and the science and all the rest of it, but Prince Philip was also interested in philosophy and, dare I say it, theology. Um, uh, 
when you are in a privileged position like he was, um, whether you're there by dint of birth, um, as the Queen is, or whether you're elected, for example, let me pick someone at random, like Harold Wilson became Prime Minister at the time, you often do get the opportunity to, to drive through to do great things. We've discussed Harold Wilson in the past, and we note that one of his greatest achievements, and he knew it at the time, he said it, publicly was his creation of the Open University. And of course, the Open University was ahead of its time and has gone on to flourish and touch the lives of, of millions mm -hmm. of people. Duke of Edinburgh was able to do that, not just through his charitable work and, 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 and the visits he would do, but he was also able to do it um, through a little known institution uh, that, that, that he helped to co-create, which is called St. George's House, which is actually um it's sort of like a little mini college that people go to usually for five or six days at a time um within the walls of windsor castle and huge numbers of politicians academics um managers executives go through courses there where they reflect philosophically theologically uh you know pulling on all the cosmological entities that we've got at our disposal, all the different philosophies that we've got, all the different approaches, all the different belief systems. People go to tackle and think about issues of the age. Um, I, I say this because I experienced it myself in 2002. Uh, I spent a week uh, with a, an incredibly, an extraordinary eminent group of people uh, at St George's House um, in Windsor, uh, just reflecting on the potential and future for the United Nations. And we had the most extraordinary facilitator, and we were hosted. And I didn't realize uh, until much later that, that that sort of week I'd had to think and reflect and help other often much more eminent and certainly powerful people than me, um, uh, often real decision makers, think this very important subject through. Um, now, he did that uh, because he wanted to bring together people from different religions, different philosophies, different you know, ideologies, different political backgrounds, and get them to know each other over and above these, what could be divisive belief systems, and then reflect on big issues of the day. Um, I think that's quite remarkable. Tim, um, thank you. So uh, we will move on, I think, to our um, the subjects we were going to talk about before we knew about this. Indeed. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. So we are going to talk, I think, about the economy and how it's been affected by the pandemic. Um, There's a piece you referred me to um, by Jeremy Warner, um, which indicates that possibly uh, the pandemic's not necessarily going to be the, the, the disaster for the economy than we thought it was going to be. Yes, I mean, in a nutshell, um, Jeremy Warner has tapped into some statements made by the International Monetary Fund in recent days, uh, where, where the IMF uh, are saying that uh, by the end of 2022, where you know, huge numbers of people have the vaccine, where we're over this COVID, hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, bump in the road, that, that huge numbers of economies will have bounced back. Many of them will be back to the size that they were before this that lots of new technology will have been embraced there will be new ways of working new ways of of um of of of, of operating in the economy um that there will be potentially um some modest inflation that um some inflation you know the inflation 
will, will go up a little bit, that there'll be a, a moderate rise in uh, interest rates that lots of people, because of lockdown now, have indeed had their savings refreshed. Uh, people do have savings, they do have capital, and they have it in a way they haven't had it uh, since, for example, the financial crash of uh, 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 just over a decade ago. Um, and that it's the conjuncture of the savings, a little bit of inflation, higher interest rates, and embracing new technology um, that could that, that could propel us forward into uh, signing our uplands. In a nutshell, that's what Jeremy Warner is saying. Now, look, uh, I, I tend towards classical liberalism, and I tend towards believing in markets precisely because I think humans should be humble in the face of of the epistemological challenge. We all, we all suffer the problem of knowledge. And because of that, it's very difficult to predict the future, to be deterministic or to centrally plan. So I don't know uh, what the future will bring. Uh, and to be really blunt with you, having spent years trying to guesstimate all the variables in all these areas, quite frankly, Simon, the IMF could be as on the money as anyone else. I mean, it might be that the pandemic held just ongoing disaster and follows in the wake of the financial crash 10 years ago and we go on to ever greater debt and problems or it could be that things are on the up and this is an inflection point a pivot point to a kind of uh, a super boom i don't know yes i confess the one thing he did not mention in this article is something of course that is mentioned in many other articles he recently which is the extraordinary level of debt it's all very well saying that um countries spending enormous amounts of money to to keep people on furlough or to come up with schemes to try and prop up the economy uh you know is necessarily a good thing but you know this is real money which has to be paid back at some stage and they're talking about a small amount of inflation but of course there's masses of pent-up demand this is talking this article as well about international supply chains and maybe it's a good idea that um, we bring back stuff onshore well that may well be we, we perhaps need more resilient economies but again you know that is one of the reasons why prices have been so low for the last generation or so is because of offshoring if we bring everything back onshore and if people have savings that they're about to spend these are all indicative of inflation that may not just be a tiny little bit and the problem is that more than a little bit of inflation is going to expose those debts in a really rather horrendous way you're, you're absolutely right and but uh whenever um well let's talk about britain whenever uh, this country has got into had these sorts of economic woes, and, 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 and we have from time to time. Uh, you know, since the medieval period, uh, quite frankly, what have the great leaders, king, queen, their bankers, whatever, politicians, parliament, prime ministers, ministers, what have they always wanted to do? But they've always wanted um, to uh, to debase the coinage, to use an old phrase. Yes. They've always wanted to... to um, uh, to to inflate away uh, the debt, um, and you know, I mean, you and I know that inflation can get out of hand very very quickly. We saw that when we were younger in the mid seventies. I remember one night, I think, when the milk marketing board increased the price of cheese butter um, um, uh, milk by by sort of twenty four percent. And my mother, I remember over supper stood over me and waved a, 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 um, a clipping, a newspaper clipping in front of me. She said, look what happened today. And I, that, you know, 24%, um, it, it, you know, in, 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 in those goods, uh, in one, one, one swoop was incredible. Um, but uh, 
if, of course, we were to have inflation of three or four percent and that were to go on um, for you know several years, then it is surprising the degree to which states can uh, um, inflate away currency if they could do it yes. over a long period. You know, the reality is most people don't notice inflation uh, psychologically if it's two or three percent a year. When inflation hits four or five percent a year, then they notice it. So what what's happened really ever since the medieval period? I mean, if you really get altitude above all these, uh, you know, all, all this statecraft is that um, is that what monarchs or politicians, whoever they like to do, is to debase the coinage at an ideal three or four percent a year. And of course, over a ten year period, by sleight of hand, uh, yes. you can get rid of huge chunks of of, of debt. But um, uh, yes, uh, they're certainly walking a tightrope. But well, <laughs> yes. I, I, what I admire, and I know Jeremy, uh, you know Jeremy uh, Warner, and he's a, he's a good friend of Middlesex University. What I like about him in this is his optimism, and I do think we need a bit of that from time to time. Well, it's true, and there are some things here that that, that clearly are grounds for hope. I mean, he talks about possibly. Um, because companies are having to actually think better how to survive, not just to continue in business, that maybe we'll see a jump in productivity. And this, of course, we've talked about so many times over the last few years is something that has bedeviled the UK, particularly um, uh, absence, of course, of some foreign workers might also give a, a boot up the backside to British companies who might need to actually find ways of doing things better with um, uh fewer people yeah um but it also talks about um possibly kick-starting the fourth industrial revolution he talks about um home working which clearly was a trend before but moving at a glacial pace it'll be interesting to see how many companies do continue with home working i suspect many will try and find a sort of mix and match way of doing it indeed i mean you know uh, uh, working from home uh is for an awful lot of people very sensible. Now, there are some chief executives who, for their own uh, sort of reasons, don't trust it, don't like it. Yeah. Um, but I think that the, the future organisation, future chief executives that could do really well are the ones that, that do try and engineer it. Uh, without naming names or, or identifying anyone, I know one of chief executive arrived in a company a couple of years ago. Um, they took over and they absolutely insisted that everyone who had previously worked online from home went into an office. And I actually asked one of the people involved, I said, now you're spending X amount of time extra traveling per day. Um, how much productivity do you think your chief executive, who was you know, paid a huge amount, mm. um, how much productivity uh, have you lost? And this person was very adamant. Oh, this, this, within two weeks, this person has cut. Um, at least 15% productivity from the leadership team. Now, the real, of course, uh, issue for chief executives, it's, and many of them don't understand this, it's not that when people work from home that they're slothful or lazy or not doing the work. Quite the reverse. The big problem for chief executives is that when people work from home, they often live their work and work harder and for longer hours, and there's usually a mental health cost to that. You know, if you get out of bed and rock up to your computer and you're on it and you feel guilty if you get off at five or six, I'll just slip in another hour. Oh, and it's Saturday. I've got a couple of things to catch up with. You know, that's bad news. 
there is a, a side of which if people do have to get on a bus or train or walk to work, they get time to reflect and think, and, and there's a deviation. But there's a, there's a lot of a lot of thinking, a lot of chief executives can have to do. And the yes. reality is, uh, as it says in the article, we might hit a Goldilocks moment. We might embrace a fourth industrial revolution. We might go for greater growth, higher productivity, little bit of inflation to deal with some <laughs> debt, you know. But but you can feel we're on the tightrope, can't you? And we're high up. Yes, well, there's not much in the air at the moment, so flying pigs probably won't um, get in the way of any planes. But he does, I mean, as you say, there is a degree of optimism here that perhaps could do with it. And it, he does say, quite rightly, logically, it makes little or no sense for everyone to be travelling to work at the same time, crammed onto overstretched transport systems and into extremely expensive and again overcrowded city centre real estate. Yes. So eventually it'll be repurposed for residential or other use. It'll take time, it'll cost a lot of money, but ultimately, he says, that'll lead to a more rational, higher productive a pro higher productivity economy and that does seem to me to be yes a, a pretty good bonus yeah i mean I'm, i don't often blow my own trumpet but i am going to do that now when i took over an organization uh, in brussels in 2002 um and you know google was in my life uh you know uh good com desktop computers were in my life and had been for a little while um the internet was was a viable thing even back then um, what I did very quickly was make sure that most of my colleagues worked from home. And in fact, my model for working with people, for hiring people, was yes, they should have certain um, uh, abilities, capabilities, certain skills, uh, certain educational background, you know, all the rest of it. But actually, I wanted them to be self-starters, self-motivated and to work from home. And I thought, and, and I thought it was better for them it led to higher productivity and greater value for us. Um, the only thing I was mindful of was that occasionally you want to get together and, and, and you know, quite frankly, for Christmas parties or Easter or birthday mm. parties, you, you, if you can get people physically together and share the stories, you know, and, and all the rest of it. But, but an awful lot of people are simply more productive working from home. Now, if yeah. I had learned that, I knew that in 2002. I do find it amazing that so many companies and chief executives uh, and executive chair people and all the rest of it have taken so long to work out that, that this fourth industrial... True, though, it can, it, yeah, it can go too far the other way. I mean, my, my daughter's had a, a job for four months. She's never met anybody she's working with, and she feels that's a big disadvantage. Yeah, and you that's know. where I think there's a balance. And yeah, I do yeah, think, yeah. you know, I mean, for example, I think that one thing that, 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 that should be asked is... Um, I think, you know, if I was chief executive today, I'd actually ask people, you know, what sort of lifestyle do you want? And I, you know, if I was talking to your daughter, if I said to her, would you like to come into an office one or two days a week and meet people um, or three days? Yeah. How could we then if she, you know, I'm sure she would she's unlikely to say, yeah, I want to come in, you know, five, five days yeah. a week. But it, it's I think about having a more sensible conversation yeah, um, and understanding people. I agree. Um Tim, uh, let's take a break and uh, we will change topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, what's our next topic? Really good article in the New Statesman by Chris uh, Deeran. I, to be fair, I don't know who Chris Deeran is 
or, or what he does. But it, it's called Independent or Not, Scotland Must Get Over Its Fear of Business. And what this article does is it reports um, uh, some, inf or some data um, that has come in recently from, uh, I, I think it's from uh, Oxford Economics, is it? Uh, uh, but anyway, it's looking at the Scottish economy and looking at the track record of the 14-year nationalist government up there. And as a hook for the article, it actually talks about a guy called Jim Sillers, who's the former um, deputy leader of the SNP. Um, and, and basically, Sillers is very critical of the SNP's reign um, uh, because he thinks that it it, it sort of failed quite frankly mm. that on the, on the one side um the SNP's job was to uh make uh the case for a devolved scotland and ultimately an independent scotland but one that was built on economic prosperity and economic success and i think for Sillers, uh, he believes that 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 well as he suggests um that the snp has become a, a, a led by an increasingly a sort of personality cult under Nicola Sturgeon um, and that the track record is simply not there economically um, and and that the Scottish economy has not been turbo boosted um, and 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 that this is a travesty and, and for me it's a travesty because um, whenever I go you know anywhere pretty much in much of the world there, there are sort there are certain things if if you're from these fair islands of ours that you're going to bump into um you invariably wherever you go you invariably find don't you an irish bar um if there are any welsh to be found they literally have started a choir um i remember in bratislava uh, some welsh friends turned up and they immediately formed a choir within two days and there was an irish pub uh, it was one of the early bars <laughs> set up after communism in bratislava um but but the other thing you find is you find these Scottish entrepreneurs, um, and you also find incredible legacy product uh, uh, projects of theirs. You find this in the United States. You of course find it in that great Caledonian tradition of 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 Canada, but so many other places around the world. And you think of Scotland, home of the Scottish Enlightenment, Adam Smith, you know all these wonderful characters, all that science, all that economic insight. Um, yet, what the data shows. Um, is that 20% of Scottish leavers, school leavers are not in employment, uh, further education or training, and that for quite a few years now, um, um, you know, the Scotland's population in terms of GDP per head has been lagging behind the rest of the UK. And in 2019, for example, it was 8% lower. Scottish shocking. It is shocking. You know, we talked about a productivity problem. Well, Scottish workers are less productive, productive than their than their UK counterparts. And and and, and so, despite the fact that Scotland actually gets more money to spend on its population per head than any other part of the UK, under the I think the Barnet formula, it Barnet, gets more yeah. money. You know, it has a lot of money pumped into the NHS and all the rest of it. And you know, this is a very entrepreneurial country. Uh, with hard-working, highly skilled people, yet for whatever reason, they're not making the great. And so um, the article is, is, is saying that really uh, the SNP is not doing well. And it, I think it's a call to action for, for Scottish people, really, not to be duped um, 
by the SNP under Nicola Sturgeon, uh, it is to actually ask more questions of the government about what are they going to do for the economy to boost productivity and improve these areas. It does look as if she's cruising to a rather substantial victory in the elections, um, which we'd like well, yeah, to see. But you, 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 you know, you're not going to. She's not going to win. She's not going to be sustainable, uh, even if she wins the election. Her project is not going to be sustainable. Mm if Scotland simply goes on falling yep. behind. And if there was a another referendum, you know, if they're not able to answer questions about how would they handle their relationship with the Bank of England and you know, the pound, uh, and, and they're not going to have the sort of level of, of funding that they have from, that they enjoy from London at the moment, and, 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 and basically they see through the prism of a gap analysis that there's a huge amount they've got to catch up with, then this is very serious. And, and, and it's with that I see why uh, Jim Sillers, you know, uh, who remains a member of the SNP, um, is calling into question um, her leadership and, and, um, and the direction of Scotland. Yes. Uh, Tim, we've got time for one more time. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. So what's it to, what's it to be? Well, there's a really good new book by Jonathan Dimbleby coming out, um, uh, uh, and, and it's having excerpts published in some national press. There's a piece uh, uh, that's recently been published in, um, in, uh, in, in The Telegraph. And basically, he's because his father was an extraordinary uh, reporter, very brave man during the Second World War, um, he's gone through a lot of his father's material and research subjects further and obviously a lot of thinking and he's sort of presenting his own take on the inside story of the barbaric battle that really lost Hitler the war and basically what Dimbleby is arguing is that um, that once uh, Hitler's generals were defeated uh, in effect at the gates of Moscow and that once Stalin uh, was able to regroup his forces, the Soviet Air Force, the Red Army, etc. Really, it was the productive might uh, of, of, of Russia and the colossal size of the Red Army as it built up, and also the stoic heroism of the Russian people that simply numerically um, made uh, the German victory impossible. And yes, of course, Stalin wanted uh, uh, a second front he wanted us to do d-day and of course we well to some extent some historians quite plausibly argue that we had a second front when we went up the toe of italy um yes. it, the reality is that that the, that the might of russia the might of rather mother russia the size of its capability the size of its population meant that as soon as it got going and it, and it sort of pushed forward and it pushed the germans into eastern europe and it's a quite frankly it was all over and and this is an attempt by Dimbleby to, I think, um, uh, rebalance our own perspectives because when you look at American yeah, films, that's always been the Russian perspective, of course. Uh, yes, but when you uh, yes, um, you know, when you look at American film, it was always the the Americans that won the war. Or if you look at a British mm. movie, you know, sort of movies we grew up with in black and white movies, yes. um, it was always it was Tommy. Film. Yep. It was Tommy and all the rest of it in the RAF and the Battle of Britain, all these wonderful contributions. I'm not detracting from them at all. But if you just get sort of altitude above the, the battlefield and you really look at who had the numbers, who had the armour, who had the might, you know, who was suffering the losses, then, then 
this was overwhelmingly um, a, a, a victory for for Russia, and and I think it's um, I think it's a remarkable uh, book, but not least from a very eminent BBC uh, journalist, but also it, it, it's it's a very good, insightful, and objective piece of work that, that to be blunt, tells it like it really is and like it really was. Yes, he said he says the historic debt owes to the owed to those who fought their way across France to Berlin is not that they defeated the Nazis, but that they saved Western Europe from Stalin's tyranny. Exactly. And that, that's the, the, the powerful concluding point. You know, Russia uh, and its might sort of beat Hitler. Uh, what we were doing was making sure that, that the flame of democracy and freedom and liberty was saved from um, well, from communism and, and, and orthodox state socialism. Yes. Fascinating. Fascinating book. Won't stop me watching those old black and white um, movies. <laughs> I confess. Yes. But, no, I mean, I think <laughs> like, you're part of that generation. Like, I'm sure. Well, it was some, who was it? It was some, it was a set number of actors in those that we, that we all know, love. Um, John Mills. John Mills, Richard Todd. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, Same ones came around again and again. Yes. Those, those two won at least half the war, didn't they? Yes. Uh, bizarrely, uh, according, what, what was the body that actually um, uh, measured morale? But apparently it was a George Formby film where he punched Hitler in a dream sequence that apparently was the most um, highly recorded moment for morale in the war. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, isn't that fantastic? George well, Formby punching Hitler. We talk about uh, fake news or propaganda or soft power today, but of course, when you look at people like George Formby and the, and, and, and the role they played, or Vera Lynn, um, you know, that was an age of real soft power. Yes. Tim, thank you very much as ever. Um, I've been talking to Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim will be back again in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.